We're going to continue our study of Acts this morning. Uh, We've been studying the early Christian community through the book of Acts. Uh, We're going to get through Acts chapter, we're going to do half of Acts 8 this week and half of Acts 8 next week. And then we're going to get into Advent and prepare for Christmas and we'll take a little break on Acts for a while. Uh, It's been an awesome study where we have seen just the power of the gospel at work through Christ and through his church. Uh, And over the next couple weeks, we're going to see more and more of that power at work. Uh, For those of you who weren't here last week, we covered Acts 6 and 7, and we looked at the ministry of Stephen, who was the first martyr of the church. Uh, We looked at his ministry and his message and his martyrdom, right? Uh, And we learned how the gospel compels us to serve the church, uh, either through the preaching of the word or the serving of tables, and how God uses that to minister to the church And then he uses us to share the gospel. He actually uses our suffering to spread the gospel. And Acts 7 ends with Stephen's death. Well, as we pick up uh, the beginning of Acts 8 here, we we will see what happens after Stephen dies and how the gospel spreads through Stephen's death. Now, the passage that we're about to read is, is really exciting and interesting. And it, it, there's been a lot of ink spilled about a few of the different situations here in this passage. Okay, there's a lot of intramural debates and interpretations about this passage. Uh, I'm not going to go into all those this morning because that would be a really boring sermon and hard to follow. Okay, so uh, as you can tell, I'll take some stances and I'm going to preach uh, the gospel as I believe that God's laid it on my heart to preach from the truth of this text this morning. If you're interested in getting coffee and talking about some of those intramural discussions and some of those technical debates, I would love to have that conversation with you and, and revisit my seminary notes and all that kind of stuff. But, but we're not going to get into all those different issues today. We're just going to look at, uh, we're going to look at the power in this passage. I think that's a, that's a topic that's very evident, evident and obvious here. And so I think you'll see the power of the gospel at work as we look at it here. All right, hear the word of the Lord from Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 25. And Saul approved his execution, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed And after being baptized, he continued with Philip and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. 
for he had not yet fallen on any of them. But they'd only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I may lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me that the Lord pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. All men are like grass, and their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but not God's word. It stands forever. Let's listen to it. Uh, to Kill a Mockingbird is uh, an American classic, and I, I read it whenever I was a kid. I went back and read it as an adult a few years ago. You should probably do that, adults. Like, you miss so much of, of, of the power of these books when you read them as a, as a youth or an adolescent, and you catch a lot more whenever you go back and read it as an adult. Uh, so one of the, the scenes that really sticks out for me in that book uh, is a scene where uh, there's a man named Tom Robinson Tom is accused of beating, Tom is African-American, he's accused of beating a white woman, and uh, so he's going to go on trial, and he is at, he is at the jail, uh, and to, to waiting his trial, and Atticus Finch is the lawyer who has been uh, chosen to represent Tom in his trial, and, and Atticus finds out that the night before Tom is going to be moved to another jail, that there's going to be a lynch mob that's going to come down for Tom. So Atticus goes and sets up a chair, and he spends the night in front of the jail so the lynch mob can't come and get Tom. Well, Atticus's children find out about it, and they sneak away. They don't really know what's going to happen. They just know something's going to go down. So they sneak away that night to go down to the jail and find out what's going on. And when they show up, the lynch mob is there talking to Atticus, trying to get in to get Tom. Uh, one of Atticus's children is a little girl named Scout. She's uh, the main character of the book. And Scout is uh, there watching this all unfold with her dad, and she sees a man in the crowd that she knows, Mr. Cunningham. And she looks at him and says, Hey, Mr. Cunningham, how, how's it going with your, with, your, with your entanglements? That was his court cases that Atticus was helping him with. And Mr. Cunningham just hangs his head, and he says, Mr. Cunningham, like, you remember me. You came to the house the other day. I'm, I'm Scout Finch. I'm friends with your son. Would you tell him I said hi? And the man just hangs his head. And she goes on and on in kindness, in meekness, in humility, just trying to talk to Mr. Cunningham. In that moment, you see him uh, just totally disarmed. Here's this angry mob that's about to kill someone that is defeated by the humility and kindness and weakness of a little girl. And they turn around, and they walk off. Mr. Cunningham says, let's go home, boys. In that, that moment, you see how her power worked not through her strength, but through her weakness. Now, let me ask you this. When you are faced with the spiritual forces of this world, 
when they oppose you, when they confront you, how do you defeat them? How do you disarm them? We know that that all people everywhere, including Christians, are confronted with spiritual forces of evil. The, The world, the flesh, and the devil are always attacking us. They're always in opposition to us. And so we have to have a way to do battle with them. We see the same thing here in this passage. You see, or as we've been looking through Acts, really, starting in Acts 3 on, you begin to see this opposition take shape. Right? In Acts 3, the apostles heal a lame man, and then there's opposition from the priests and the rulers and the leaders. The religious world around them opposes them. And then Acts 5, there's opposition from inside, from the flesh, in Ananias and Sapphira, right? They're, they're hypocritical. And then in Acts 6, you see more opposition. There's the logistical opposition of how are they going to serve the poor and serve the word. And then you get to Acts 7, and there's more opposition from the synagogue leaders. And then we get to Acts 8, and there's opposition from Saul and others. They're persecuting the church. They're ravaging the church. They're killing Christians. You have these evil spirits and you have this man named Simon. You have these spiritual forces of evil, the world, the flesh, and the devil warring against Christ and his church. How does he defeat them? He defeats them through the power of the gospel, which is actually a power that comes through weakness. See, God's power is at work in the weakness of the gospel. In the gospel, Jesus, through his life, death, and resurrection, becomes our king. And when he becomes our king, he brings us under his power, he rules and defends us, and he restrains and conquers all of his and all of our enemies. That's the good news of the gospel. That's the great king that we have in Jesus and the great kingdom that we're a part of. And what we see through this passage is that God is at work through the weakness of preaching that gospel, the humility of that gospel, and the repentance that we find in that gospel. God's power works through weakness. God's power works through weakness. And we're going to see that through the preaching, humility, and repentance that we see in this passage. So let's look at that together. The first thing we see is that God's power works through the weakness of preaching, right? So verses 1 through 3, you have this great persecution that breaks out after Stephen's death. And from that great persecution, you have what we call the great dispersion. The Jews that were in Jerusalem that were being persecuted scattered all over the region, But when they scattered, what did they do? Did they they hide in their homes? Did they retreat? Did they run away? No. They began preaching the gospel. It causes the great evangelization of the region. And in verses 4 to 5, it says they began to preach and proclaim the good news. And the word there for preach is evangelizo, from the word that we get evangelism. They're evangelizing. And it's used five times here in this passage, right? It says that they, they, they preach the word. They preach the kingdom of God. They preach the name of Jesus and Jesus. 
They preach this to Samaria. They preach it to Caesarea. They go out preaching the gospel. That's how they confront the opposition is through preaching the gospel. And one of the things that you see about the gospel, you see it take shape is the gospel is simply not, it's not good advice. It's not a list of good morals. It's an announcement about the good news about what God has done through the person and work of Jesus. It's primarily a proclamation, right? And, and what happens as they go out and preach this word is Philip begins to, begins to do signs and wonders that authenticate the power of the gospel. There's healings, there's exorcisms, and they show that Jesus' kingdom is here, it's expanding, and it is restoring and renewing all things, right? Because the, the, the spiritual forces of evil that cause the demon possession and healing, that's not the way God intended this world to be. Those are products of the fall that entered in because of sin and because of brokenness, right? And what Jesus has done is through his personal work, he has brought his kingdom to bear. And now his kingdom is restoring and renewing all things. And it is driving back the darkness that is caused by those evil forces. And what does it bring? It brings joy. It brings joy and gladness and happiness, right, to these people. And we see that God's power is working through the weakness of preaching. That's how he's bringing his victory to bear. Uh, I saw a great example of that this weekend, watching the movie Unbroken. Uh, two weeks in a row, we've watched running movies. I don't know. We just came out of cross-country season, so I guess we're on a running thing, right? We'll probably watch Chariots of Fire next week, and you'll get Chariots of Fire sermon illustrations. But this week, we watched Unbroken, which tells the story of Louis Zamperini, who was an Olympic uh, athlete, who uh, joined the military and fought during World War II. He, uh, his plane went down over the Pacific Ocean. He was stranded for 40-plus days in the ocean. He was captured by the Japanese and taken into prison. He was brutally beaten and tortured for a long time. And, and as, the, as the, he, he goes to this one internment camp and the war uh, drags on, you begin to see there's little signs that things are going to change, right? They begin to hear messages that the allied forces are winning, right? They hear, oh, the, the allies have taken the, the Marshall Islands. The allies have taken this island. And then at night, they'll go out and they'll see bombings in Japan in the skyline. And these are all little signs that the allied forces are coming in to take over Japan and to win, well, finally, one day, they're all, you know, they're all brought out before a Japanese leader, and they bring up kind of the spokesperson for the, the POWs, and he comes up, and the Japanese leader says, there has been a great cessation in the war, and you guys are going to be free. And the, the, the spokesperson says, hey, we're all going to go down in the river. They're going to wash us and clean us, and then they're going to they're gonna cleanse us so that we can be ready for this great celebration. And they're thinking that we are going to go down there and die. So they walk them all down to the river. They're all standing in the river. Uh, they're just hanging out. There's soldiers all around getting ready to shoot them. And as, they, as they're standing there in the river getting ready to die, they see a bomber fly overhead with the American symbol over it. And they realize the war's been won. That's the sign. Victory has been achieved. 
The evil forces have been defeated. We are going to be freed and we're going to be liberated. And they start celebrating. They start jumping around and splashing in the water, filled with joy. And then as the, as the allied forces take over, they begin dropping these, these parachutes of gifts down, food, clothing, other uh, libations that they haven't had in years because they've been POWs. They're celebrating. They're filled with joy. Those were all signs that the victory had been won, that the battle was over. What we have here in this message, these are signs that the, the battle's been won The victory is over. Jesus has been victorious. And now God is going to restore and renew all things through his kingdom. And that's what we proclaim when we proclaim the gospel. That's where the the power of the gospel comes from. It comes from proclaiming the truth and the power and the relevance of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And it is transforming the world. It is a weakness you cannot stop. Uh, They tried to stop it in China in 1949. The Chinese government uh, was defeated by the communists, and they drove out all the Christian missionaries, over 200 of them. It looked like a total disaster. They kicked them all out of China. What those missionaries did was they spread to the surrounding islands and continued to share the gospel. And the work, but the work that they had done in China began to take seed and the underground house churches began to grow in China, and now there are 30, 40 times as many Christians in China now as there was before they kicked out all the missionaries. It's unstoppable. God works through the weakness of the preaching of the gospel. That's how he defeats the world. That's how he defeats the spiritual forces of evil in this world. Um, Satan thought that he won, but really God had the last laugh. I call this gospel judo. I don't know anything about judo. All I know about judo is it works like this, that you use your opponent's weight to defeat them, okay? So that's what God did here through the gospel is he using his opponent's weight. He's using the strength to flip it on its head and defeat it. Uh, I I, I used this tactic one time in my life and it worked out. I was a senior in high school. It was project graduation. They had one of those big sumo things that was like sumo suits you could put on where you're like, you wrestle each other. And so my, a really good friend of mine, he wanted to wrestle me and he was about two inches taller than me and he outweighed me by about 20 pounds and he became a minor league baseball player and I became a public speaker. <laughs> so you can imagine how this was going to go, right? And so we get there and he gets in his suit and I get my suit and I'm thinking, how am I gonna win this? There's no way I'm gonna win it. He takes off running at me full speed. And what did I do? I stepped out of the way. I grabbed him by his back and I just threw him right down in his face. Wham! I used all of his momentum to defeat him. That's what God does through the proclamation of the gospel. It's gospel judo. He uses Satan's momentum to defeat him because God works through the weakness of the preaching of the gospel. It's the first thing we see. The second thing we see is that God works through the weakness of humility. Simon, in this passage, represents worldly power. He uses magic to amaze people, to get their attention, to prove himself, to build up his name. And he taps into real spiritual forces of evil that are present in this world. And we need to to understand that this is a, a real issue, a real problem. Right? Uh, 
paganism taps into the spiritual forces of evil in this world. Witchcraft, Wicca, tarot card reading, psychics, those are, those are real things that are tapping into spiritual forces of evil. And the Bible warns us to avoid them because they are destructive and harmful. Right? Uh, C.S. Lewis says, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. We need to be careful of both of those extremes, an unhealthy interest and disbelieving in them. And what we need to, you know, some people, most people here probably don't fall into the unhealthy excess, although it is possible, and I would warn you against it. What we probably fall into more likely is disbelieving in their existence. But what we see with Simon is, what was the root of Simon's sorcery? It was pride. He wanted to build himself up. He wanted a great name. He wanted great power. Hmm. Do Christians struggle with that? Do we ever build up our name? Do we ever try to promote ourselves and make ourselves seem more powerful than others? Do we ever get mad at our children when they make us look bad in public? Do we ever gossip about our coworkers? Do we ever uh, criticize our siblings? for stealing attention from us? Do we ever hold our, our neighbors in contempt who maybe don't look like us and don't believe like us and don't act like us? What are all those forms of? They're forms of pride. And, and Lewis says it well. He says, uh, whenever we find that our religious life is making us feel that we are good above all, that we are better than someone else, I think we may be sure that we are acted upon not by God, but by the devil. In those moments when we're using our power to push others down and build ourselves up, we're being influenced by the spiritual forces of evil in this world and in our hearts. Now, the good news of the gospel is, well, the bad news is that everyone is susceptible to this destructive and dangerous power. The good news is that our hearts can be free to the gospel, and that's what happens to the Samaritans. Right? Philip comes in, he preaches the gospel about the kingdom of Jesus Christ, they're baptized, and they believed, right? and they're saved. I love the contrast, they were amazed by Simon, but they were saved by the gospel. And when you look at the life of the Samaritans, this salvation becomes even more incredible. Who were the Samaritans? They were half-blood Jews, they were religious, they were people who, who mixed Judaism with the surrounding religions of the culture, right? They were, they were hated and they were rejected. Jews and Samaritans, they did not hang out. They were not buddies, right? They weren't going to each other's birthday parties, kids, right? And yet, they come to believe in the gospel. That things between Jews and and Samaritans were so bad that one time Jesus went to preach the gospel to the Samaritans and none of them believed. And John said, do you want me to bring down fire on them right now? Do you want me to pray that God would bring down fire right now? And Jesus said, no. What did Jesus do instead? He went to the cross for the Samaritans. And what happened on the cross? The fire of God's wrath fell on Jesus so that the fire of the Holy Spirit could fall on them here in this passage. 
Isn't that beautiful? Isn't it beautiful that, that God used John to bring the Holy Spirit <laughs> to the Samaritans? There's a lot of ink spilled over why the, the Peter and John had to come. I think God just looked at John and was like, John, I got something for you, buddy. You want to bring fire on the Samaritans? Oh, we're going to bring some fire. It wasn't the power of Jesus that changed the Samaritans. It was his humility that he went to the cross for them. Philippians 2 tells us, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, that though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, he humbled himself to obedience, even death on a cross. The power of the gospel works not through us pushing others down. It works through the humility of the cross. That's how Jesus saved us. And that's how God's power works through us as we minister to others in this world and as we encounter the spiritual forces of evil in this world. God's power works through the weakness of preaching. God's power works through the weakness of humility. And last thing we see is that God's power works through the weakness of repentance. Right? If you look at verses uh, 21 through 25, Peter looks at Simon and says, Simon, you are trapped. Your money, your power, your name, your glory, your prestige, it will not save you. You're enslaved. When he talks about being caught in the gall of bitterness, he's saying you're enslaved. You're, you're being consumed by a force that's destroying you. You have desires in your heart that need forgiveness. You need to repent, right? We often hear that word repentance and we think God is angry and mean. And he's calling me to repent. And I, and I think that the tone of that voice needs to change. We need to hear God mercifully, lovingly, kindly calling us to repentance the way that um, Scout Finch was <laughs> kindly, compassionately calling Mr. Cunningham to see his sin in that moment. She didn't even know she was doing it. Paul tells us it's the God, Lord's kindness that brings us to repentance. When, when Peter calls Simon to repent, right, he's calling him to say, thy will be done, not my will be done. And when Peter calls us to repent, he calls us to say, when Jesus calls us to repent, he calls us to say, thy will be done, Lord, not my will be done. And it's through that kind of repentance that God frees us and brings the joy that we saw earlier in this passage. Uh, C.S. Lewis experienced this in his conversion. This ended up being a C.S. Lewis sermon. I'm sorry, I didn't really plan that. It just sort of worked out. But uh, C.S. Lewis wrote a book about his uh, conversion called Surprised by Joy. And he talks about how the, the, uh, the tragedy of his younger life and the, uh, just the, the blandness and the grayness of his atheism just overwhelmed him. But he talks about how every now and then he was pierced by arrows of joy. And he eventually followed those arrows to God. And he talks about how God was arranging the pieces on the checkerboard to get him to a point where he had to checkmate him. 
And then he explains his conversion story this way. He says, in the Trinity term in 1929, I gave in and admitted that was God was God and knelt and prayed. Perhaps that night, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England, I did not then see what I see, what is now the most shining and obvious thing. The divine humility will accept a convert even on such terms. <laughs> see, see, Lewis didn't come willingly. He came kicking and screaming and fighting. But eventually he bowed the knee and he said, thy will be done, not my will be done. He says that the, the divine mercy compelled him. He said the hardness of God is kinder than the softness of men. And his compulsion is our liberation. Do you want to be freed from your addiction to power? Do you want to be freed from your addiction to sin? Do you want to be freed from the spiritual forces of evil in this world that surround you and trap you and condemn you? Then say, thy will be done, not my will be done. Come to Christ, bow the knee to him, submit to him in his great kingship and his great kingdom. Come in the weakness of repentance and he will free you. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 describes this freedom, that we were enslaved to the spiritual forces in this world. We were, we were rebellious. We were objects of wrath. We were without hope. But God, who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, he saved us. And he freed us filled with, for a life filled with joy and good works. If you're here this morning and you're thinking about becoming a Christian or you've never given your life to Christ, the way to do it is to bow the knee and say, thy will be done, thy kingdom come. And that's, that's the way we continue to grow in the Christian life. That's the way we continue to battle the spiritual forces of evil is to say, thy will be done, thy kingdom come. Thy will be done, not my will be done. Uh, later on in Ephesians, in Ephesians 4, Paul says this, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Now, Steve told me this, and I'm gonna trust Steve because he's a scholar and a gentleman and a good pastor. He says that word opportunity there is in the Greek is tapos or topography. And what some, some uh, versions translate it foothold or handhold. So what Paul is saying is when you allow anger and bitterness and contempt to live in your life, what you're doing is you're giving Satan a foothold and a handhold. You're giving him land that he doesn't own in your heart. And the way of repentance takes back that land. You're kicking him out and you're saying, Satan, that's not your land. This isn't your spot. This isn't your home. Get out. And so when we practice the weakness of repentance, what we're doing is we're driving those evil forces out of our heart. We're not letting them give it a foothold. We're not letting them get any land, right? We're not letting the devil continue to work in our hearts. When we say, when we refuse to say a slanderous word about our coworker, we're not giving the devil a foothold. When we refuse to hold resentment against our spouse, we're not giving the devil a foothold. When we refuse to hold our neighbor in contempt who doesn't look like us or talk like us and act like us, 
We're not giving the devil a foothold. We're not giving him position. It's not his. I will tell you that um, I struggle with anger. I struggle with impatience and frustration and annoyance. And it's something that I've been uh, working on for uh, years and months and years. And I will continue to work on. Uh, But one of the, the best practices that I've learned that's really helped me is at the end of the day, looking back over my day and looking up all the resentments that have built up during the day and saying, you know what? I'm not gonna hold on to those resentments. I'm gonna forgive as I've been forgiven. I'm gonna let those resentments go. And I think it's in that, when we do that, when we go through that process, we're not giving the devil a foothold. We're not letting him have power in our life. And we can do that because of what Jesus has done for us because the victory has already been won. And maybe the great sign and wonder that we're all looking for the gospel is the fact that any of us are here right now and we're not bound in unforgiveness and hate and anger and contentment. That the Lord Jesus has freed us from all those things and given us joy. And the ordinary work of the Christian life is to bring those things to Jesus and ask him to forgive us. So let's do that now together. Please pray with me.